Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, hello. It's November, and it's shout-out time. So we'd like to welcome A.D. Bond, Lee Harvey, and Anthony Carroll as members of the Angry Mob. Thank you very much. Your support is allowing us to upgrade our tech and cover the hosting costs. We literally cannot be here without you. So thank you very much. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our heritage professionals and enthusiasts to publicly hang the corpse of inaccuracy, where historians give us a period of brutal anger, followed by a glorious restoration of the truth. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and good friend, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. And this week, dear listener, we are returning to the early modern period for a rage that is very close to my heart, one that I was actually thinking of recording if we were ever stuck for guests. Sadly for my blood pressure, we're never stuck for guests. But to take us on this journey today, we are joined by author, presenter, history hack regular, and recently crowned by us, Dowager Countess of Rage, Charlotte White. Charlotte, welcome to History Rage. Thank you for having me, loyal subject. (laughs) feeling angry i'm furious good good uh burnings at the stake beheadings the whole lot oh the the whole nine yards yes now that now that you've ennobled me um everyone needs to watch out (laughs) well i've heard you on history hack and i have to say i've become frequently enamored by a lot of the photos of cakes because (laughs) who doesn't love cake (laughs) But for our other listener, uh, please tell us a bit about yourself and your work and how you've ended up where you are. Okay, so I've been hiding in plain sight for the last decade, running a company called Restoration Cake, which was a cake design company named after my love of someone we're going to speak about today, Charles II. And over the years, I've had some great opportunities. I've written a couple of cake books, burlesque baking and deliciously decorated I went on BBC Radio London and was introduced as the burlesque baker and it stuck. So I started doing food festivals and all kinds of things going around the country. I now host and curate my own traveling food festival, Foodies Festival. We are the Cake and Desserts Theatre. We go all, all over. So I've been doing that. And then, of course, pandemic, no festivals, no cakes, yeah. no fun, no laughter, no dancing, certainly no dancing. And um, no parties whatsoever. It's all a bit Puritan, wasn't it? It was. It's, as a 17th century enthusiast, it has been like living through my history books. <laughs> you have no idea. It's, uh, yeah, it, it gets a little bit too close for comfort. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I used that time to effectively come out as a historian and fully embraced well my nerd well self. done thank you thank yeah, you brave and inspiring thank you. brave and inspiring <laughs> i found my people through history hack so my husband chris and i share an office and he had listened to all of their band of brothers episodes 
And he said, you've got to get involved with these people. So I made contact and then immediately thought I was going to vomit from imposter syndrome <laughs> and uh, started started taking part. The first episode I took part in was the, the they did the greatest Britain, but they also did the, the most shit Britain. And I was invited on to take down Oliver Cromwell. And of course, Alex being Alex hates Cromwell as much yep. as I do. So she saved me until last, effectively headlining History Hack down the pub. Your last slot is where you want to go. Anyway, I had been drinking. And as the evening went on, I drank more and more. And so my impassioned rant at the end of that was probably about a bottle of red wine down. And it didn't make much sense. It was very slurry, but it was basically just me shouting about how much I hated Oliver Cromwell. And that got me in. And I've been doing history hack for what, two years now. So, um, so that, yeah. <laughs> that's the secret to getting in history hack. Then. It's, it's true. It's, it's not be nice to Zach and he'll book you in. It's, it's no, wankered while you're on camera. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's how down the pub works. Because remember, we we couldn't go down the pub yeah. at that point. That was it. Was such a, a an outlet. My you know, I'd be up here doing this and and go downstairs where Chris, bless him, had been you know, trying to watch a war movie in peace. And he'd say, I've heard nothing for the last three hours, but you laughing. And it was it was great. So, yeah, I, I, I love the team very much. And I'm very grateful to be part of History Hack. Well, guys out there, if you've not taken advantage of History Hack, do so. You know, we much as it pains me to plug a rival podcast, on our own <laughs> podcast but yeah. seriously, do. yeah, they are good. Um, they are good. They were the inspiration or one of the inspirations for us to get going on podcasting as well. Uh, and we've had a few of them on and hope to get a few more of them on as well. So let's get right down to, to brass tacks and uh, sharpened axes, shall we? Right, let's do it. With what History Rage is all about. So, <laughs> Charlotte, with all the rage that you feel it musters and warrants, will you please tell our listeners the one thing you wish people would just get over? I think it's time, people. I think we've we've had long enough. It's time to stop talking about the bloody Tudors and start looking at the Stuarts. Team 17th century. Yes, come on. Well, team, I hate Tudors right here. <laughs> I just feel like, look, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, okay? I'm not, I'm not pretending to be a Tudor historian at all, but I've consumed a lot of it. I love historical fiction. I love movies. I love books. I love documentaries. I'll even watch the shonky ones. But if genuinely, I feel now that if somebody could put a documentary on about Anne Boleyn and say something that I genuinely have never heard before, I will eat my hat. I've and I've got lots of them. I've got <laughs> I've got forty two berets, people, and that's not that's not even a proper hat. I will eat them, all of them. If you can dig up something on that poor woman. That has not been said. And having said that, she would love that we're still talking about her. Oh, she would love um, that. Yeah. Oh my God. And so would Henry. I mean, they're, they're both fame hungry Love Island contestants 500 years ago, as far as I'm concerned. Done. You finished. Move on. You mentioned documentaries there, and it's one that always bugs me. Cause it's like documentaries on Henry VIII, mm -hmm. documentaries on Anne Boleyn, documentaries on you know, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine Howard, not a programme worth a shite on mm. there, is there? Well, the problem about poor Catherine, and this is this is something that I, I feel that, again, reflects my point really well. We don't know how old she was because no one bothers to write down when girls are born because, you know, pff, girl, um, what's the point? The best guess is that she was probably 17 when he married her and 19 when he killed her. There's no time at all. People like Mary Bolin as well. What we actually know about Mary Bolin could be written on the back of a postage stamp. We've got mm. nothing on these women. And I I doff my cap to two historical novelists who take the time to actually imagine themselves into those women's lives because it's the only way we can get in. That's the only access we've got to peripheral women is – is um, historical novelists who do the research and then imagine in the gaps because yeah. it's not there. We don't have their letters. We don't have 
records of them because, you know, girls, what's the point? Um, that's why you can't make a documentary about Catherine Howard other than one of those awful ones, which would be, she must have felt this. She must have been thinking that. Get lost. And we are actually in uh, gratuitous danger of uh, talking too much about Judas yeah, here. We've all met Johnny. They snuck the air out of the room with their, <laughs> and they're not even a legitimate bloody family. Hashtag Con- House of York forever. Con- controversial, but moving quickly yeah. on. <laughs> Welcome to all our new members of the Richard the Third Society who have joined us in yes. the last 30 seconds. Loyalty yes. me, Lee, guys. I'm with you. I'm fully radicalised by my Yorkist mother. So, no, I, I yeah. Well, I'm, I am already on your side here as I am sick to death of bloody Tudors and, mm-hmm. and they are bloody. And the ones that are not bloody are quite burning. <laughs> um, so let's, let's start us off really with, if we look at the Stuarts then, that we should all be talking about. Mm-hmm. Who, and I know you're going to go down a particular one, but I'm looking for others as well. Who are the cool Stuarts? Okay, well, look, the Stuarts are Mary, Queen of Scots, revenge. So Elizabeth I cuts off her cousin's head, thinks, I'm completely done with this, and then realises she's completely forgotten to make her own heir and has to take Mary's. So we get down this whole other dynasty, starting with James I of England, and he's the sixth of Scotland. He is not what I would call a cool Stuart, even though he sets in place a lot of what we think of as being the 17th century. So for a start, he rewrites the Bible. I mean, he doesn't do it himself, but we give him credit for it. So the King James Bible that I was given at my christening, which, mate, was not that long ago. So it's still very much... (laughs) I was given it at school, which is that long ago. And it still has a dedication at the front. If you open your King James Bible that you you might have from your christening or from school, if you open it, the dedication at the front is still to King James. It's that old. It's absolutely amazing. And it's still there. It's still being passed around the world. So King James did that. He also went after the witches. So he he wrote a whole thing about how to spot witches in your community and Mm -hmm. how to dispatch of them. And let's face it, you know, when, when people talk to anyone who's into history and say, oh, would you would you want to live back then? No, I would have been burnt in about two minutes, like flat, gone. <laughs> so he he invents witches. Uh, he invents witches. He invents the Bible. And then he spends all the country's money and promptly dies. You can see why they wanted to blow him up, can't you? Well, the only the only man who ever walked into Parliament with honest intentions, right, was Guy Fawkes. I would say he was the only person that walked into Parliament to uh, to to do what he went in to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other rage. That is a whole other rage. The monarch's not in there anymore. I was upset that they wanted to blow up the the royal family, but now they're out of there. You know, I'm I'm team, <laughs> team guy. hashtag team guy. Um, no, I'm going to get myself arrested because they're probably listening to me again. So James spends all the money and leaves the country to his son, Charles, Charles I, who was not intended to be the heir. He was the spare. He had an elder brother called Henry, who was the Prince of Wales everybody wanted. He was handsome. He was fit. He was dashing. He was sporty. He liked to go swimming in the Thames. He caught dysentery and he died from it. Not cool. Um, so, you know, it, it's a thing amongst Henry's, isn't it? First sons, yeah. first sons are, yeah, they are. This, it's a, what are they feeding them? Problem. It's a big problem. Would, you know, I, I say that I'm a, I'm a fan of, uh, historical fiction and I am. And, uh, in the, the white queen, Philippa Gregory sort of writes in there that Elizabeth Woodville is, you know, she's, she's not witchy. She's connected to, you know, she's connected to mother nature. And she curses the firstborn children going down the generations of the people who who killed her sons. And uh, so who knows? Firstborn sons tend to die. So Charles becomes Charles I. He's he's a stammerer. And if the the best still, the best Charles I I've seen on screen is Alec Guinness in Cromwell. And it's not a perfect film, but I think if you want to see Charles that's the closest I've seen. So he, he's he got that real 
again, imposter syndrome, he's not meant to be there. He's not meant mm-hmm. to be the king, but he is, and he is by divine right. And this is something that the Stuarts really do lean into because it's a way of stopping any kind of uh, challenge to the, the throne and to keep people behaving themselves is to say, you know, we are here by God. God put us here. God ordained us. Therefore, you behave and don't challenge us. And Charles, because he's got this this stammer, it's almost this this hurdle he has to overcome. He really doubles down on his divine right. He really doubles down on that he is the man in charge, and unfortunately comes up against a parliament that's starting to say, "Well, hang on, this isn't good." He hasn't called us for eleven years. We haven't been anywhere near the House of Commons for 11 years. This guy is ruling on his own. We've got this absolute monarch and he's doing what he wants to do. And he's he's raising taxes so that he can fight wars that we don't want to fight. So he's going up and fighting uh, in Scotland to stop, to stop them misbehaving because they're upset that they're having to use his dad's Bible. We're saying, no, no, yeah. you've got to use this Bible and this book of common prayer. Here, we're all going to pray the same prayers. And the Scots are saying, ah, no. And the Scots don't just say no. They say, hell no, piss off. And they start pulling up pews in churches. And it's this this whole big thing. So <laughs> this is so much fun. I love this. By now, my friends and family are all glazing over and just saying, shut <laughs> up. Shut up. We just want to. To have a drink and we just want to enjoy Coronation <laughs> Street, Charlotte. Stop it. I wish I never asked you about this stuff. <laughs> so look, Charles, we all know what happens to Charles. He ends up with his head cut off. There's a there's a civil war. Yep. He ends up with his head cut off, and we get Oliver Cromwell for you know for a decade. It's not cool. Where I start getting interested is with the second Charles. So Charles II is is my guy. He is someone I've spent 20 years plus obsessively reading about, consuming everything I can get of him. And I still don't know him. I still don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. He's an enigma wrapped in a mystery, shrouded in a periwig. He is, he's everything that you think he is and nothing that you think he is at the same time. He's Paul Weller's the changing man. You know, the more I see, yeah. the more I know, the more I know, the less I understand. That is him. And historians have been arguing about him forever. They can't decide if he was good or he was bad, if he was a good man, but a bad husband. But did that make him a bad king? You know, all of these things. I mean, I certainly would not want him to be my husband because that's a tough dog to keep on the porch. But he <laughs> is the really cool Stuart. He's by his father's side at the age of 12, when he raises his standard against his people. At the age of 10, his father sends him into the House of Lords to beg for the life of his um, his father's chief minister, the mm. Earl of Stratford, who then gets killed by act of attainder, which is, you know, harsh. No trial, no jury. We're, we decide you're guilty of treason, you die. So he has this incredibly dramatic childhood, incredibly dramatic life. And, uh, He's what needs talking about. I think this this period that encompasses Charles's life from 1630 to 1685 needs talking about now. It's Brexit. It's COVID. It's all the things that we don't want to talk about. It's the Dutch haters. It's you know all of these things. It's what we're living through. Yeah. So the Tudors are all blood and politics and romance and betrayal and terror and killing and fighting and all those wonderful things that make a really good drama what are the stewards bringing to the table what what are they doing to make a good tv series are the stewards just a little bit dull compared to the tudors oh my god get out now that's that's insane there's so much more in in these years than in the Tudor times. So very much what we talk about when we talk about the Tudors is we talk about the the break with the Church of England. That's the bit that people really enjoy, that Henry gets the hots for Anne Boleyn, finds some principles, great, gets Thomas Cromwell to help him get rid of his wife, marries Anne Boleyn, realises he doesn't want to be married to her, and boom, everything goes 
kind of tits up from there. The Stuarts, it takes in the entire country. So every everything that's all of the things that have been laid by the break with the with the Church of Rome and the establishment of the Church of England come to a head a hundred years later. Um, you've got all this simmering tension between Catholics and Protestants, which is which is vast. So when you get to a point where you've, you're coming to Parliament versus the King, and you need people to fight, normally what would happen is Lord whatever calls his people, musters an army for either side, and they go. That's what what they do. So he says, right, we're going to go and fight the French. I need ten thousand men. And 10,000 men come and thoroughly agree to go with him. They might run away and defect to the other side for whatever reason. They might not want to fight for the king. They might feel that they want off they go. In the Civil War, what happens is Lord, Lord whatever calls his men together and they might not necessarily want to fight for, for parliament and for the rights of, rights of the common man. I mean, I say common man in yeah. You know, the rights of the lesser nobility. Yeah, the rights of the, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's it. This, this idea that the civil war is to give the common man, like, like, um, well, obviously I'm, I'm a dowager, dowager duchess now. So like you guys to give you a say over what's happening. That is not happening. No one yeah, is I mean we're working class and northern. Yeah. This is not going to happen. Not happening. Absolutely not happening. Unless you unless you own your, you know, own your estate uh, or you've you've married very well, you're you're not even in this conversation yeah. at all. And and I as a as a, a human woman sans penis have no rights whatsoever. So this isn't this sort of utopia that's being mm-hmm. fought for. But you're getting this split and this that people are starting to question very much their position in in life. So it's more Tudor than Tudor in terms of bloodiness. I mean, the the deaths. I'm I'm not good with numbers of of dead in wars because military history, as someone who who loves the Civil War and and what comes after it, military history is not my strong suit because I have a real problem, like most people, I think, in processing big numbers. So they tell me at Marston Moor, you know, 3,000 men died. That's awful. But they tell me that Prince Rupert's dog, Boy, died that day running into battle after his master. That I feel. Yes. <laughs> that yeah, I feel. That's worse. Because I can't process 3,000 men on a battlefield. I can't, I, I can't emotionally understand that. One dog running after its master. I mean, they have been a pile on the floor. Yeah, you, can, um, <laughs> you, can, you can visualize. I can that dog see that. After the horse yeah. and then being exactly what a good boy, right? It's, yeah. it's too much. It's too much to take. And parliamentary war crime there. <laughs> exactly. I'm just, yeah. But I'm the, out now. the propaganda, the propaganda about boy was was brilliant, and there there are still you know wood cuttings from from the you know the the pamphlets that. Was sent out. You you get press for the first time at this this point in the seventeenth century as well. Popular press, so they would be sharing pamphlets saying, "Look at the royalist army. Look how awful they are. How debauched they are. And look at this this satanic dog that's with them. This is this is um, Prince Rupert's familiar." So there was this whole big thing about. You know, yeah. I believe point. we're talking. Aren't we talking about a poodle here as well? Uh, you know, okay, the... it, that's really funny because yes, I always imagined that Prince, because Prince Rupert's fabulous. Let's let's you know that's fine. He he rides in, come to help his uncle out after we we'd helped him in the the thirty years. What well, he's he's a cool guy, so fit, historical hottie, rides in with a poodle under his arm. Now you're thinking like a toy poodle, aren't you? Um, no, I am actually thinking yeah, of standard. Yeah, poodle, so I was, you know, I was always thinking it was a toy poodle, but yes, no, it's a standard <laughs> poodle. It's yeah, you know, they're slightly bigger and a bit more, a bit more battle ready than yeah. in my head. This little white fluffy thing yeah. under his arm, just sort of hold yeah. it like a chainsaw and just go at go at the enemy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But uh, no, there's there's just so much in here in terms of political intrigue. There's even more in terms of. Um, you know, backstabbing and and you know, all of that sort of stuff. There's more sex. If you want sex, if we're if we're loving the Tudors because 
Henry VIII had six wives or whatever. I mean, that's nothing to my boy Charlie. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Chances are, if if you can trace your family back far enough as being English, you're probably related to him. I mean, he did that much shagging. <laughs> Legendary swordsman. In all senses of In the word. In all senses apparently. of the word. So there's, there's that much. And then there's all the kind of legendary stuff you know the mm. hiding in the oak tree after the battle of yeah. worcester he, he did that he he genuinely hid from from parliamentarian troops in an oak tree he he sold his soul his father had died and he wanted to get back and to reclaim his throne and the scots said look we are going to we're going to put you back on the throne the english got rid of the institution of monarchy the minute they cut off the kid's king's head they put that in place because what's the first thing you say when the king is dead? Long live the king. Long live the king. So they, yeah. before they cut his head off, they scrambled. I mean, it was like, it was, I don't know if this is true or apocryphal, but the morning of, they're kind of undoing the institution of monarchy so that when the king's head is cut off, that is done, it's finished. But the Scots don't get the memo. So they hear, hang on. They they killed our king. We had no part in this because we're we're up in Edinburgh being ignored as per usual. Yeah, yeah. Long live King Charles the Second. So they say, look, come back. We'll give you an army. We will march down and we'll get your your throne back. But we're gonna kind of need you to put in our religion across everything. We're, we're gonna be Presbyterians now. This is how it's gonna be. And Charles sells his soul. He says, yep, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll sign the covenant. Good to go. Lands in Scotland and they essentially put him under house arrest. So he's he's locked up. He's sitting there waiting to go. The Scots, meanwhile, look at their army and say, hang on, our army is a little bit too royalist. They're a bit too for the king. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of all of those and just keep the really godly ones. So they decimate their own army, <laughs> which is a brilliant idea. March down <laughs> just before the campaign, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then Cromwell helps them out at Dunbar by decimating them even further. It's an awful, awful defeat for the Scottish army. It's still, you know, you, you say Dunbar you know, north of the border, and it's still, still remembered. It's awful as a, you know, as a defeat. Then as they march this this ragtag army they've got left down, they get as far as Worcester. Before one year to the day after Dunbar, Cromwell decimates him again. And that's it. That is the end of the royalist cause. No one is going to rally to Charles again because they can't fight. They can't fight this machine. The yeah. new model army. You know, and in terms of military history, this is way more interesting mm. than anything you get in Tudor times. The creation of the new model army is phenomenal. It changed the game completely. The Civil War had been, you know, a lot of back and forth for a very long time. In fact, if it had been done at the first Battle of Edgehill, it would have been done. The Royalist Army would have won if they'd actually cleaned themselves, cleaned the the mess up that they'd left rather than going off after a baggage train, which unfortunately yeah. was Prince Rupert's thing. Kind of like mm. to... It's cavalry, it's what yeah, they do. They do tend to bugger off and go after the spoils of war. <laughs> if they dealt with it, then it would have been done. And it kind of been a bit backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And then Cromwell and his his generals have this great idea that actually we're going to do things differently. We're going to get rid of all of the lords who are automatically given military control because on the, the basis that they are lords. So they come up with this brilliant idea in Parliament called the Self-Denying Ordinance, which was a way of not saying look, Earl of Essex, you need to step down because you're crap. It's saying you're going to resign your own post and that will be honourable and that will be a thing. Mm -hmm. So they put into command generals who know what they're doing. It becomes a meritocracy. And this is a really, yeah, this is a huge moment. And yeah, we, we give Cromwell a lot of credit for this, but really it's Fairfax is your guy. Cromwell's not yeah. really in command until after the Civil War. Again, this is another rage thing, but you need to get Miranda Malins on to talk about this. Cromwell versus the king, not a thing. Does not happen. Yeah. Um, it's just an easy shorthand. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's there's so much there. 
bloodletting, sex, politics. What do you want? I've got it all in the Stuarts. Stuarts. It's fine. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, well, let's let's turn that around a little bit then, because, you know, as as we've gone into Stuart's, at least in England, mm-hmm. rule over a reign of civil wars, plagues, disaster, puritanical witch hunting, and the whole thing culminates in us actually asking <laughs> the Dutch to invade. The Dutch! Please. The Dutch of all people. Yeah. The, the Dutch, nefarious yeah. Dutch. The nefarious Dutch. Yes, Dutch, yes. Not the perfidious French, you know, <laughs> but the nefarious Dutch. Apologies to our listeners in the Netherlands. <laughs> So, you know, they can't, they can't be all bad. So how are they less dysfunctional than the Tudors? Then? That's the, the Stuarts, not the Dutch. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's that's a whole other thing. Oh my- the Dutch are highly functional. So, yeah. I've got a lot of time for the Dutch. Yes, I have, they a, are you know, they are, they are very much at this time, the they are the enemy. And it's not because we have any ideological problem with the dutch at all it's not we have we should be sisters we are we're both protestant Mm. nations we're both seafaring people we both love to trade but that's the issue and it's a very dangerous moment during charles ii's time in that if you don't destroy the dutch they will destroy you because you're both seafaring nations, you're both trading. Whoever trades the most gets the most money. Whoever has the most money builds the biggest navy. Whoever's got the biggest navy is going to get the best friend in Europe. And that friend is the French. So if, God forbid, the Dutch are doing better than us and suddenly make an alliance with France, which they had early in the 1660s, they were actually allied, we are in big trouble. Because mm-hmm. you know, we could be very much mm. surrounded. As it happens, France just wants to go after Spain. So really, we're we're kind of okay, but we're in a better position if we can destroy the Dutch and be the the seafaring nation that everybody wants to be friends with. In terms of being less dysfunctional, no, you you don't have that. the The familial relations are actually bigger in Stuart times because. You've got Charles II on his throne. Sitting with him is his younger brother, James, Duke of York, who's the heir apparent, because despite being, you know, the world's greatest swordsman, Charles can't seem to have a legitimate heir with his wife. He was too busy having a legitimate woman, really, isn't he? Do you know what? He did his duty by her. He did do his duty. He did do his duty. But then this is this is your difference between Charles and Henry, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to this. He should have divorced her a hundred times over because she had one job and she wasn't doing that one job, but he never did it. And the question is why, but we can, we can come back to that. But in Europe, so in France, you've got Charles's cousin, Louis Fourteenth on the throne with a shit ton of money at his disposal. Mm-hmm. You've got living at the French court uh, is Charles's youngest sister. Henrietta Anne, known as Minette. She's the Duchess of Orleans. She's married to Louis's younger brother. They are there. Oh, so is Charles's mother, Henrietta Maria, who I just adore. I think she's, you know, the mother that everybody wants and nobody wants. She's very, very difficult. In Holland, you have uh, William, who is, <laughs> this is, I mean, it's just, they are so inbred. It's ridiculous, the Stuarts. Um, you have William, who is Charles's nephew by his eldest sister, Mary, who, who dies quite young, sadly, when, when William is 10. And then William then marries 
James's daughter, also called Mary. Oh, you so, know, don't shout out the wrong name. <laughs> my brain hurts. Kyle, Kyle is having a bit of a mental meltdown here. It's, I mean, the the relationships with the with the royal families of Europe is absolutely ridiculous. And William of Orange is not given enough credit as a Stuart in in my eyes. So later on, and this is this is later in the Stuart period when we do ask the Dutch to invade. We're asking William and Mary to invade. So we're not really asking Dutch people to come over. We're asking an English woman and a half English man to come back. Yeah, um, so they are Stuarts. But there's yeah. this great moment where we're fighting the Dutch. So we have we have a couple of wars with the Dutch under Charles II. And we're allied with France. And the French are attacking by the land. We're attacking by sea. And it's not going well for Holland. They're having a really hard time. Charles sends a couple of ambassadors. Uh, the Earl of Arlington and the Duke of Buckingham, who hate each other, which is just fabulous. I wish I'd been on that road trip. And they go to him and they say, here's a letter from your uncle in which he's saying, I will give you, I'll make you king of Holland. He's not king of Holland. There's a whole sort of republic, stadholder, weird arrangement they've got over there. I will make you king of Holland. You're getting really bad advice from the DeWitt brothers, who are your, you know, your prime ministers, if you like. You're getting terrible mm. advice from them. Lots of your people are dying. They don't need to. So just you know, make friends with me. I'll make you King of Holland and I'll stop everybody dying. What William does is he publishes that letter. He tells he tells Arlington and Buckingham, we're not done until the last Dutchman is dead in a ditch. We're going to keep fighting. But he publishes the letter. And a week later, within a week, DeWitt and his brother are killed, flayed, and eaten by the Dutch people. That's that is a Stuart. That's what Stuarts do. They think they're like chess players. They're thinking steps ahead. He knows exactly what he's doing when he puts that letter out. He knows that if he tells the people we could have peace if it wasn't for these guys, that there's an Orangist faction that are going to take that at its word and they are going to do something about it. I don't know if he knew that they would eat them, but yeah. Well, you know, first offence and all. <laughs> <laughs> you want dysfunction? I've got dysfunction. I've got yeah, dysfunction I mean, you know, my, for you. my question was, how are they less dysfunction? Oh, okay, how are they less dysfunction? Quite clearly, they're not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well, look, here is here is one difference between um, your beloved Henry VIII and Charles II. Aside from the fact that Charles is fitter, clearly, you know, hot, hottie. Henry VIII was a psychopath. He was absolutely a psychopath. The number of people he killed in cold blood for happening to be born in the wrong family, for not giving him a son, for maybe cheating on him, whatever. You know, the, the number of people that Henry VIII killed in cold blood was huge. When Charles II got back from exile at the age of 30, this is the, the Restoration 1660. Mm. When he gets back, he passes an act of indemnity and oblivion whereby everyone is forgiven. If you if you come and you, you pledge your loyalty within two weeks, then we're cool. I can't I can't physically give everybody back their land that they had 20 years ago because it's changed hands several times over. And I can't do that without starting another civil war. But if you come to me and you say, look, dude, your majesty, then we're going to be fine. The only people I can't forgive are the people who signed my father's death warrant. And that's, that's I think, pretty fair. Reasonable, yeah. There are, I think, I think there's something like 10 deaths in 11 days or 11 deaths in 10 days that happen uh, after trials. They, they go to trial. The, the regicides are tried. And they're executed with, you know, with the traitor's death. It's not very nice. The bodies of Cromwell, Ireton, and Bradshaw. So that's obviously the the main the main two guys and the the judge who presided over the king's trial. Those three are dug up out of Westminster Abbey because they shouldn't have been there in the first place. They're dug up. They're sort of showed off, you know, because they were part of it as well. But after that, he's done. That's the the end of the grisly of Charles II's reign. Yeah, He's not vindictive. 
Those are the reprisals. And he never divorces his wife. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So this this kind of like leads me in then to the next question, which is very much Charles II, the man, because Mm -hmm. it's not my area of expertise. So to me, Charles II, party king, mistresses, more parties, hedonism, court favourites. It gets him, in my opinion, the best song on Horrible History. Oh, yeah. I can sing all of it for you right now. That's how much... Please don't. (laughs) There are people in the world that can't sing and shouldn't sing, and you are both, Kyle. (laughs) But yeah, surely there is more to him than than a a load of mistresses. Nah. Um. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Next question. Um, why the <laughs> there absolutely is, but this is this is the enigma about Charles, and this is why I think he is so fabulous. I think that the the women and the you know the the shagging and all of that stuff and the partying it distracts but it also reveals. And at times I think that there's a certain amount of distraction as being a a clever tool to, to let him get on with what he wants to do. So in terms of the, the times he's, he spent in exile in, in terms of what he saw happen to his father, he is actually a very easygoing human. He seems very chilled out. And the only thing he wants is to not go on his travels again. He doesn't want to have to, bum around Europe again with no no money, no certainty. He certainly doesn't want to have to go back to war. That's not what he wants, not on his own soil anyway. Going to war at sea is a whole other thing. That's great fun. Boaty wars. Oh, yeah. Boaty wars are fun. We like a boaty war. Um, <laughs> I've been hanging out with Chris Sams too much and, um, and, Clearly. David, and David Davis. But he, you know, as a as a thing, and as we look back at him, the 25 years that he actually sits on the throne, the fact that what most people talk about is, oh, Nell Gwynn and, you know, n- let not poor Nelly starve is, is a shorthand for actually he was quite fun loving. He loved the arts. He supported, um, science and development. He was actually very bold and very brave and you know, very forward thinking in his designs for London. I think that, that when, mm. When we lost half of London, I always feel really bad because it's like, you know, they, they got over the plague and they and London was like, yes, we are delivered. And then it burns down. Um, <laughs> this is this that's, is why. That's a good London celebration by any standards, really. Is It really is. But no, he, he was he was a, a party king. But what people don't give him credit for is the fact that he got up at five o'clock every morning. He got up, got shit done did what he needed to do, handed over to his ministers, signed what he needed to sign, let them do the thing. And then, you know, lunch, theatre at four, supper, shagging, bed, you know, he was happy. Like happy, you, happy really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't he spotted um, personally helping to put out the fire during the Great Fire of London? He was. Now this is this is great optics, right? Yeah. This is really good optics. And um and this is again something that I think we are revising a little bit post COVID because he's always got a little bit of a hard time for leaving London during the plague. Anyone who had any money left London. They went mm. to their country manors. The countryside in this time was not like a people didn't go to the country for like recreation. People went to the country to hunt things. And then come back and to avoid plagues. Yeah, it wasn't like a oh, let's go for a lovely walk in the country. That wasn't what people did. They that the country was there for hunting, and other than that, there was probably going to be a rebellion come from the country. It wasn't it wasn't sort of a lovely, lovely thing that we think of now. But they all went to the country. They all they all ran away. So did the doctors because doctors get paid by wealthy patrons who leave. They go with them. So those plague doctors, you know, the beaky ones. They were a handful of do-gooders with a conscience. If you were in a bubble with your family and somebody got the plague, you'd all be locked up in your house together. It was like, right, well, that one's, they're screwed. Yep. Red Cross goes on the door, I'll leave them to it. So I think he got a bit of a hard time for, oh, he went off. He went out of London. How very dare he? Now we realise post-covid that actually you, you can't stay in you can't stay and fight a plague it doesn't work like that yeah. and if if 
the king dies of plague, that's not a good thing to happen, especially seeing as he doesn't have an heir except his Catholic brother, who nobody wants to take the throne. So we, we'll give him a free pass now. But they do. So Charles and James, Duke of York, are seen fighting the flames. Um, Charles promises to people that he will rebuild London. He's you know, handing out coins to people as a as a promise that he will rebuild. They they cast aside their periwigs. I mean, very sensible in in flames. And at that time. Beneath all of those beautiful curls, men would have um, pretty much shaven heads and Charles went grey very early. So, you know, you'd have the, the two brothers without their periwigs, they'd have, you know, close buzz cuts going on, mm-hmm. grey hair, covered in soot. They were there and James oversaw the um, blowing up of people's houses because that was, it was a hard yeah. thing to do because people didn't want their houses blown up, but they they needed to stop the fire in that way. So exactly. no, he did. He he was he was a fire stopper, right? Yeah. <laughs> as the as the famous song goes. So we've talked a little bit about the man himself. What was Charles's style of kingship and the monarchy? Uh, what was he actually trying to achieve with his time on the throne? And following on from that, how do we still have the repercussions of of his life and his policies and his reign? Well, again, he was an enigma. So he was mm. one of the most easygoing, approachable. Um, you know, when you meet a celebrity who's like so famous that they make you feel like the only person in the room, like like they've been doing it for a hundred years. He's like that, but at the same time, he touches for the king's evil. He reinstates this ancient tradition of the monarch being God's representative on earth, and the the touch of his hand can heal you. So he's at once man. Um, he's got a common touch unlike any monarch before him. He's had more experience of his people through hiding and running and this sort of mad two-week dash across the country after Worcester. And then all the time in, in exile as well. He has met people from the the full social gamut and he can talk to them. But at the same time, he is God. So he treads this incredibly thin line between between the most manly man that you've met and the most godly god his so his style of kingship is is both of those things what he wanted more than anything was just for everybody to chill the hell out he he tried to pass toleration from the moment he got back and he said look my mum's a catholic uh my brother's a, a secret catholic like the worst kept secret in the world I've been hidden in priest holes by loyal Catholics. They're okay. They're fine. They're not gonna. They're not gonna eat your children. They're all right. <laughs> so all he wants is toleration. And every time he goes to Parliament, it says, "Right, declaration of indulgence. We're going to make it easier for just if people want to dissent, as long as they're loyal, that's fine." Every time he does it, Parliament snaps back two two jumps in the other direction, and. By by the mid 1670s, Catholics can't hold high office or be in Parliament. It's it's insane. Dissenting preachers aren't allowed within five miles of their old parishes. It's really really harsh what Parliament does, and he's trying to just trying to sort of chill everybody out. In the mid 1670s as well, you get the Popish Plot, which was the QAnon of its day. So. Mm-hmm. The Catholics are trying to kill the king because they want to put James on the throne because he's a Catholic. This is and the Queen's doing it. And there's tunnels in Whitehall that they're trying to trying to get, yeah, they're trying to poison the king through. And the king says, Okay, Titus Oates, this is the guy's name, Titus Oates. Uh, he is your QAnon of the time. Show me exactly where you saw this happening. And he gets as lost walking through Whitehall as people looking for basements under pizza parlors in Washington, DC. They're not there. <laughs> it's it's completely insane. So he he tries to he tries to pass toleration. He tries to make everything nice for people. Um, he supports the theater, he supports science, he, you know, he supports artists. He's really he's just a he's a good form guy. I think he'd enjoy hanging out with him. Um, in terms of what he leaves us, the most obvious thing that Charles II has left us is St. Paul's Cathedral, which is iconic. Mm. You can't see London without it. How controversial that was after old St. Paul's burnt down 
in the Great Fire of London for something so Romish to be in the centre of London and something so beautiful is a testament to him just saying, we're going to have it my way. We're going to do what I want to do. Well, thank you very much for that, Charlotte. Um, you actually may make a royalist out of me yet. Yes! Uh, especially if you bribe me with cake. Huzzah! Totally. But seriously, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. I hope if nothing else, I've I've proved to your listeners that there is some really juicy stuff to get into in the 17th century. They don't need to stay with Henry VIII and Anne sodding Berlin. Come on, join me. The water's lovely. <laughs> and she has cake. <laughs> well, if you'd like to know more about Charlotte's work, then uh, listen out for her on History Hack, where she regularly appears. And you can check out her excellent website at www.restorationcake.com, where you will get hungrier by the minute. And you can follow her on Twitter at Restoration Cake. Charlotte, it has been an honour and a privilege having you and Charles II on our uh, podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, if you like, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon because your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks a lot for listening and stay angry. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.